Listener Production. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and this is how the show starts. I ask my guest who they are. So who are you? I'm Phil. Um, I'm Phil Wang. I'm a comedian and I'm in London in the UK. You are yeah. in London in, London in the UK. You know what I'm loving, Phil Wang? Thank you for doing the show, by the way. I appreciate oh, it very much. But also, I'm just loving this particular background that you are in front of on this Riverside call that we are on today because not only do you have quite a, like, I don't know, I can't even quite tell what the pattern is. It looks like a lot of, like, <laughs> blowflies have gathered <laughs> on a white yeah. wall. And then yeah. there is just a picture of, like... Like I, all I can see is anyway. Could you please describe to me what it is that I am looking at in the background? Where are you? What is it that I'm staring at? This is the sort of study office room in my house, and this wallpaper was here when I moved in. This right. is well, this was the kids' room <laughs> of the last people, the little young kid, and this is a sort of animal print wallpaper. It's white with sort of black, I guess sort of. No, they're not stripes, they're not dots, they're, they're long dots, right? They're long dots, and I, I, when I moved in, I thought, okay, first thing I'm doing is getting rid of this wallpaper, and, yeah. and it's been two years, and I don't know if you can get Stockholm Syndrome with the wallpaper, but that's what I have with this wallpaper. It's it's kind of terrifying. Now that you tell me it was a, a children's room, I, I can't, I'd like to really, like, track like, you know, seven-up style, that child's life, and see if, like, being raised in a bedroom that had that wallpaper has had any sort of long-term effects on that child. What's seven-up style? Uh, well, you know that show? Do you know? I mean, I thought that would be a reference that you would understand, but there was a British documentary series called Seven Up, I believe, and uh, they revisited a group of people oh. every seven years to oh. track how their lives, and they did it so... Seven years later, then 14 years later, then 21 years later, then 28 oh. years later. And they followed these ordinary people every seven years through their lives to see what they were getting up to. Yeah, so, it rings a bell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That oh, was cool. my yeah. best British reference I had too, like for someone who was in London and that has fallen flat. So, <laughs> well, <I'm, laughs> my, my reference points are a bit weird because I'm, I'm British, but I grew up in Malaysia and I've been, I've, been, I've been here half of my life. So I've been here since I was 16. So even though I'm 33, I have sort of the cultural age hmm. of a 16-year-old, <laughs> of a 17-year-old, you know? So, yeah, so I, I don't remember the things British people my age talk about because I wasn't here for that. Whereas I, I am aware of the things that maybe if you were a teenager, if you were born here when I moved here, then we have the same cultural reference points. What, what's that like when it – like, I mean, because so much of comedy – can be about those cultural influences. And when you are both of a place but not of a place, like are those gaps in your background helpful, do you think, because it gives you a unique perspective that everybody doesn't have from that? Or do, uh, or are they difficult hurdles to overcome? It's, it, it seems to be a balancing act because, um, you know, and you know this as well as anyone, the, a comedy – a comedy audience, what they enjoy out of you is a sort of fish-out-of-water observer figure 
but they also want a kind of familiarity with you, right? Like there's sort of two types of comedians. There's the there's the observer, the outside observer, and then there's the guy you want to have a pint with. You know, there's the guy who grew up like you, knows all the lingo that you grew up with, makes all those tiny, tiny, you know, those really specific observations about British life or Australian life or, and he feels like, they feel like they've been your friend your whole life. I'm not that, I can't be that because I don't know. I, you know, I wasn't around here for that. And so I can only play the outside observer really. So in that sense, it helps, you know, having, having, these cultural gaps here sort of helps with my my persona of of the observer the, the soft i'm soft semi foreign you know that's my my persona here my my stand up position here my stand up persona here is soft semi foreign i'm half british and then half foreign like i'm i'm currently talking about being quite british um and feeling quite british but still being perplexed by for example how much people here get food poisoning People just get food poisoning all the time, yeah. And, and I'd never heard of food poisoning before I moved to the UK. Like, do you know people I mean? not not get food poisoning in Malaysia? I don't Is remember just... any... For 16 years of my life, I don't mm. remember a single case of food poisoning. And then moved to the UK and I was like, food can be poisoned? I had no idea. But people here get sick really quick, easy from food. That's interesting to me. Do you think... It, you, do you have a theory behind it? Tell me what you think that why that why that exists. I well probably because food here is too clean, right? And it's probably a bit more processed uh, than food in say Malaysia. Although I don't know if that's so true to say, but also in Malaysia things rot quicker, you know, because it's so hot. We pro- you probably grow up eating things that have developed a bit of bacteria or are on the turn or and you just build up a resistance to it you know um i i just i have i think i have quite a strong resistance to to illness because of growing up in malaysia just from the exposure here you probably grow up eating relatively clean food you know things aren't aren't off or aren't going off and you just don't develop and probably a smaller i mean less true for my generation but a smaller range of foods you're exposed to fewer different types of foods and i mean i've just been on i just went on a trip to egypt i was filming something in egypt and went with the british crew and they were just every day someone else was had diarrhea it was crazy (laughs) i was just i was the only man left standing (laughs) so I'm interested in that though, because I also read years ago when Starbucks, the coffee chain, first went to to China, it had become a bit of a phenomenon. But at the same time, people that were also reporting that it was making everybody sick because there wasn't as high a tolerance to dairy. Well, this is it. So in, this is this is sort of a routine I'm doing now, but about um, food poisoning is that Chinese people are completely immune to everything. Except alcohol and dairy, which will kill us straight away. Uh. <laughs> but like me, I might like my you know. I say my dad can't drink milk. My dad, my dad gets Asian flush, you know, as well. So, it's, but for some reason, it's just dairy. It's just alcohol. The rest, you know, we're like bulletproof dairy and alcohol. People are always worried about the rise of China, but 
Just sprinkle the place with some some milk and I think <laughs> <laughs> just just you know circle the British Isles with yogurt and <laughs> and there's nothing for us to worry about, you know. Yeah, I think like I've always thought that with my dad because he's a dairy farmer and like I obviously didn't want to be a farmer uh, when I was growing up, but I did think this might be. Like Australia keeps thinking, oh, we'll get some submarines, 20 submarines will protect Australia from the might of the Chinese army. It's really going to be the 300 cows rather than the 20 submarines that are going to come in handy. Yeah, milk cannon. That's all, that's all you need. Wow. So you grew up on a dairy farm. You, have, you must have incredibly strong bones. I so I'm a vegetarian. I don't I don't um so I've oh. been a vegetarian for like 25 years, but I'm not vegan cuz as I used to say in my stand up, I've already disappointed my parents enough. Uh so <laughs> I like I like dairy. Yeah, I'm like a big dairy person, but I also have osteoarthritis in my hips. So whatever people say about like yeah, so I've like I've done everything that you could possibly do anecdotally <laughs> to have good uh. bones and it still has not worked out for me. So <laughs> Uh, now you're eating this morning because you're, it's morning there. It's nighttime here. Yeah. It's morning there. That's how time works. Um, you are actually eating a little bit at the moment. What do you? What's a normal breakfast or what's today's breakfast for? I still never settle on my breakfast. Mm. You know, it's it's kind of mm -hmm. pathetic. I don't feel like a grown up person. I'll just I I had cereal for a bit, like a child. I'm now having porridge because they come in these handy sacks that you put in the bowl and you put in the microwave. You add milk. Ironically, you add milk. I'm okay with milk. I've eaten my way through it. I'm, I, I think I've, I've burst the lactose intolerance. And I've just had a sort of dried, uh, dried bananas and dried pineapple. I don't think it's particularly healthy. It's a lot of sugar, but it just keeps me going. I'm really bad at breakfast, man. I've only really, only really started eating breakfast in my adulthood. I, I, didn't, I didn't eat it as a kid. I was, I was never hungry. It made me feel sick, the idea of eating in the morning. So I've still not really figured it out. Like in like Malaysia, what culturally do people eat for breakfast? Like I get the idea of like what like Mal Malaysian food might be or at least the Western version of Malaysian food might be for like, you know, dinner, like lunch, dinner. I understand, you know, like what Malaysian food might look like. But what is culturally appropriate for breakfast? For the most part, really, there's very little distinction. There's not really like breakfast food. You can have laksa for breakfast. You can have roti chanai for breakfast. You can have all these foods that... People uh, associate as just you have a lunch or dinner, but you can kind of have them all at breakfast. It's like right. there's no discrimination <laughs> in Malaysia. It's like equal opportunities for all yeah. for all dishes. There, there are a couple of things like there's you know nasi lemak, yeah. nasi lemak. Yes. Yeah, so that that's a breakfast food, and there's a Hainanese. <laughs> Sorry, I, I mean it just occurs to me how weird it is now that we do delineate between like, oh, yes, yeah. you know that it's like that, you know like you like this food in the middle of the day or at night time but the idea that you would eat it at breakfast time is somehow culturally specific that you have to eat a different food at breakfast and it, it kind of makes sense it? to me yeah yeah i don't know why it's like oh you can't have spaghetti for breakfast yeah you have to have yeah. you have to have fried eggs and pork in three different shapes. The pork, it has to be pork and it has to be different shapes and you pretend they're different. Even though it's just pork in different shapes. We have flat pork, we have round pork, uh, we have cylindrical pork. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, it, yeah, I don't know how how did the foods gain how did the breakfast foods gain breakfast like uh duties and honors. Like what what happened to beef? How did beef, beef miss the call up for breakfast? It does seem we I mean it is actually like I like cuz I love these little things. These cuz I know cereal was I think a lot of cereal was like a religious thing. The story is the Kellogg's brothers came up with cornflakes as a means of um, weaning men off masturbating. Mm. Do you know this story? Mm. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, I've heard that exact story, which is the idea, which I also love is, were people starting the day by masturbating? Like, is that (laughs) immediately (laughs) getting out of bed and, like, masturbating? Because why is it then a breakfast thing? Or is it like men could not stop touching? The minute they were awake, they wanted to touch themselves. (laughs) So we need to get these cornflakes into them as quick as possible. You cannot wait until lunchtime. They are just going to be batting off on the street. (laughs) I mean, the elephant in the room for me is how is eating cornflakes in any way a a substantial replacement for, for wanking? I mean... (laughs) <laughs> it's not it, 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 it's not is as pleasurable does it satisfy the same urge it only <laughs> occupies one hand i don't see how mm. i don't see how it solves the problem at all oh god i'm so randy right now it's either <laughs> it's either jerk myself off into a stupor or eat sort of flattened maize <laughs> flattened corn and milk one of the two one of the two ask me one of the two right now <laughs> but but cornflakes are now extremely popular mm. and no one's wanked in 300 years so that's true it completely cleared up that problem <laughs> so everything's fine <laughs> <laughs> um so you said you started eating breakfast sorry i know that it seems weird that we're just like only talking about your breakfast but i find this sort of stuff fascinating particularly as you said that you've recently started being a breakfast person that you're starting to experiment with these various breakfasts is that purely a practical thing you've got more in your day you need more energy or like what has been the reason that you've suddenly become a breakfast person i've just i just started becoming hungry in the morning but i don't enjoy breakfast lunch and dinner i'm like excited about the opportunity you know like oh what what am i going to satisfy my hunger with but but with breakfast it's just it's a practical annoyance for me i'm like i need to stop feeling like this for a couple of hours i need to just pl- and i because i'm so bad at waking up i mean 99 percent of the reason i became a comedian is just i hate waking up i'm really bad at it i can't do it and so the idea of waking up and then having to do something in, before i'm my, i satisfy my hunger to have to get things out and clinkety clank and pots and pans and chop things I'm going to chop things in the morning. Are you kidding? So I just need to put something. I need to stop the bad feeling of hunger. I just need to stop the feeling in the morning. But for me, it's the only meal where it's just like, just stop this feeling. Mm-hmm. The other meals, I'm like, yes, there's so much potential here. Let's, let's enjoy. Let's have a feast. But breakfast, I'm just like, stop the feeling so I can have a shower. You know, that, that's, that's I mean, yeah, for me, it's, very, I mean- it's the most practical of the meals. I mean, this does feel then like where this like Venn diagram with masturbation seems to, like I can now start to see this, you know, you wake up, you just need to stop the feeling, this overwhelming urge that you have <laughs> in the morning. You just have to fill yourself up inside before you can get on with the rest of your day. I, I love the idea of looking forward to food because I really yeah. will. I'm a, I'm a food motivated person. Like I often 
think that if I need to be trained to do something, I do very much have that. In the same way as you could train a dog, you could quite easily train me around food. I like often in my day, I will reward myself, you know, like I will set myself tasks and the reward for those tasks will often be food, you know, rewards that I give myself. I'm like, after we do this tonight, it'll be, you know, kind of like, it'll be evening here. And I've like, I haven't done any exercise today. I have to take my dog for a walk. And I've already like, there's a, like, like, there's a gelato shop that I'm like, I've already put it in. If I go for my walk and I walk my dog, I will be able to go and get some gelato. Like literally I've had to give myself this, you know, food reward to do this other thing that is good for me that the reward Man. kind of cancels out in the end it sounds, it sounds like you're the so, dog <laughs> i mean i am the dog yeah the dog is like <laughs> looking dog, at me it's like, just with okay disgust. you can have your treat well <laughs> yeah. you've been a very good you've been a very good boy you can have your treat what is this late night what's this late night gelato spot how late does gelato well, go on in australia uh, 10, 10 o'clock it closes. Whoa, what? Yeah. We have restaurants mm. that don't open that late. Yeah, no, you, you can get a gelato at this place at, as late as 9.58. You can get, walk in there and they will still be, and I know that. And because they'll go, Because oh. I, know, I know that because last night at 9.58, I walked no. into that gelato shop and got gelato. <laughs> <laughs> That's wild. What flavour? Uh, they have it like they have like a range of flavors. Last night I had something that they call Coneception, which is like a. <laughs> <laughs> of course, it is, it is Melbourne you live in, right? Uh, I'm in Sydney at the moment. Oh, okay, Sydney. All right, right, right. But this particular gelato <laughs> shop is like a, a is also available in Melbourne. It's like a fancy yeah. gelato place that they have one. In. They have a couple Melbourne. in Melbourne as well, and may, may have What's started in Melbourne. Is Coneception the flavor like the flavor of cone? Yeah, like, it is. It's exactly <laughs> what it is. <laughs> so, and you're having it in a cone. So you, so that's why it's the conception. So it's got mashed oh. up cone. It is cone flavored gelato with cone chunks that you then <laughs> eat in a cone. Conception, my friend. <laughs> So it's a bread sandwich, basically. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Conception. That's, that's so nice. And what does the dog have? Yeah, they do do dog gelato, but like my dog's on, my dog doesn't. I, I'm pretty, like my dog's, the dog's on a, like the dog's old. And so the dog's on a keeping my dog healthy and alive diet. Whereas like I'm on a, eating like the world will end before I, you know, you know, I, I, I don't like the dog, the, you know what I mean? Like the, the dog won't live to see the worst of climate change, whereas I probably will. So I'm, I'm you're preparing yourself <laughs> with ice cream. You're trying to cool, dog. you're kind of, you're, you're, you're fighting global warming by cooling down from the inside out. Is that what you're doing? You know what I do, Phil? I think globally, <laughs> but I act locally. That's... <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I wanted to know, yeah, how do you frame food? In, so we've talked about breakfast, but yes, how do you frame food in the rest of your life? Like when I know when you tour, or at least you used to when you were touring as a stand-up, you would often like eat and then rate and review the uh, the places that you were eating when you were visiting oh, yes. new places. Do you still do this, or is this something that has fallen by the wayside? This is start, something that started at the Edinburgh Fringe a few years ago. 
um, where I just I, I gave a, a, a noodle place a rating on my Twitter of like bowls, like noodle bowls, five five noodle bowls out of five, and people started going to it and tweeting me bang going yeah it was great and so i just started doing it for every east asian joint i ate at that fringe and people like really started paying attention people would go to the places based on uh based on the recommendation and so i started doing um each year the, the slurpees which were my my awards for east asian restaurant best east asian restaurant that i'd eaten at that fringe and i did it one melbourne um maybe two melbournes now i've done it and I remember one time in Melbourne, there's this little joint right by the hotel that did these amazing um, handmade wontons, and I gave it five bowls out of five. And then the next time I went, every, there was only two other tables of people in there, one of whom was comedian David O'Doherty. But everyone in there was there because of my review of the place. And it, it started to become too much of a responsibility, Will. I started to, <laughs> I started to buckle under the pressure. Because <laughs> um, it started getting a bit mad. Because in, in Edinburgh, the last play, 2019, was the last time I did a full proper one in Edinburgh. And uh, the winner I chose was um, a great Macanese restaurant, like food from Macau, which is quite rare, um, called Macau Kitchen. And they won the Slurpee for that year. And I found out later on that they'd printed out, they'd made like a little document with a picture of me and the words, winner of. Phil Wang's best Asian restaurant 2019 and they framed it and put it up in the restaurant and and that, that was pretty early on in the, in their in their inception and they went on to win actual awards from actual like newspapers and magazines and stuff but mine is the first and so I've I've been back since then and they they've they've been so kind to me they've treated me like a son when I when I went back cuz they're like you were the first award we won was a slurpee <laughs> <laughs> and now i'm like this is too much responsibility i can't do I, I i have i have people's lives in my hands i can't do this anymore but i, I do so i still do it casually i'll do it like instagram stories about places i've been but those those are gone in a day i i, I can't take i can't handle the pressure of of the of reviewing i don't know how comedy reviewers do it man you have someone well, what i, what I love is hands. you Yours honestly was the equivalent, though, of a new comedian who gets their first five-star review from some publication that really isn't like a major publication. But like, it's your first five stars, you know, yeah. so it goes on the poster, <laughs> you know. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and then people start to take notice and the broadsheets maybe start to take notice and you get the age in. Or the hero, you know. Um. <laughs> Are you so when you like you talk, you mentioned comedy reviewers, like how and the pressure of like rating things yourself? Are you a person who's susceptible to other people's opinions of what it is you do? How do you yourself respond to feedback? You you obviously the responsibility of giving it and you know like being the reviewer. You found that too much, but how do you how do you <laughs> yeah. find it when you're on the other side of it? Uh, I mean, I, I sort of, I, it's, I've matured about it with age. At first, I very much saw it, saw the reviewers as examiners, because you know, my, my, I come from a, my my culture is quite, by which I mean my personal culture is an academic one. You know, I, I, I worked very hard at school. I was, I was, I took exams very seriously, and uh, so I, I think I took from that an exam 
sort of mindset. My 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 initial breaks in comedy were through competitions. So comedy for me was all always about being examined, and so I took the I took reviewers as that as these sort of objective examiners, and I uh, I just thought the idea of like oh it's just one person's opinion was like not not uh, not not very honest to yourself. And then my first couple of fringes, I, I always got like very middling reviews, which is sort of the worst kind of review to get because it doesn't, you know, it's not it, it's not useful in the sense as it's positive, but it's not really negative enough for you to go, ah, oh, I really need to completely rethink this. It's just sort of like, meh, all right, yeah, meh. And, and since then, really, the reviews got better, but I stopped reading them Really, I, I stopped reading my reviews as they got better, weirdly. But for a period there, I would only let myself read a review if I knew it was good. Uh, which sounds Im- immature, but I, essentially what I discovered about myself is that I am... I'm self-critical enough. I, I'm, I don't need anyone else telling me something's not good, because that's all I occupy myself with, is that things are not good enough. I'm, I'm what, if anything, I am what is called in, in football... A confidence player you know i'm i perform much better if i feel good about myself and feel good about the stuff so if i know something is a positive review i might read it if i have a feeling it's negative or middling i'll leave it alone because i have enough of that um that sounds childish but i think it's what works for me to be honest i just yeah i i, I think some some comedians are uh, need criticism i need encouragement probably this starting sounded like a bit of a therapy session but that, that's okay this podcast hopefully at its best always sounds a little bit like a therapy session but i love this <laughs> because i actually yeah. think this is really emotionally mature because if you are a person who thinks that people are only ever going to say positive things about you then you are living in a deluded world like there is no one ever who doesn't have like negative things said about them. You can find a negative review of the greatest movie or song or whatever of all time. You can find, you can type into the internet the person you think is the most beloved person in the entire world. And I guarantee there's going to be a whole lot of people who think that person is shit. So for you to have the emotional maturity to understand what you need to do what you do well like, I think that's incredible that you've discovered that about yourself and then been emotionally mature enough to create an environment in which you think, okay, well, this is actually good for me. I'm not going to be one of those people like, I don't read any reviews. I love the idea of just going, well, if it's a good review and if it's going to make <laughs> me feel good, then why yeah. wouldn't I read that? Like, because in any other aspect of your life, if you're like, if I, if I go for a walk, it's going to make me feel good. You wouldn't go, well, you've also got to do something that makes you feel terrible. No, you don't. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like you can just yeah. do something that makes you feel good. If it, it's also so when like, did you know, you do- yeah. You don't hang out with people who are like, oh, I should yeah. hang out with that guy who yeah. keeps telling me my haircut sucks and that I walk in a weird way. <laughs> you know, I should I should hang out with people who, who speak rudely to me. It'd be good for me. I'll become a better person. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. But you know, just, that's just so, wait, so I want to know: was there a moment when you discovered this? Like, was there a, like a, a like a literal choice? Did you just one day decide this is 
not good for me because if you say that you are self-critical, that you are the sort of person who will, you know, who will think the worst of yourself or like be critical of what it is that you are doing anyway, like I was there a time where you literally like made that decision? Can you remember? Yeah. You know, I mean, it would have been sort of half. Yeah. This would have been about mm. halfway through my career. So maybe like, was it six years ago, seven years ago, whatever? I just thought, I, I, I just, you know, I'd read, uh, I'd read uh, a middling review and go, eh, I don't feel better. I've not learned anything. Mm. I don't, <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> I, I don't feel like this has been constructive. Um, especially, no, I think you know maybe the it actually may have been earlier than that. In my sort of second sh year's show, I got a review, and the reviews like this really abounded at the time. A review that said, "Oh, he talks about race too much. He talks about being Chinese too much. He he leans on it as a crutch." And I mean, I spoke about it maybe altogether ten minutes of an hour-long show. And I thought that was such a ludicrous criticism. And it become it wasn't one off. It was something that people seem quite fond of saying. And I thought, I mean, if this if these people are going to be this uh, ra racist is too strong a word, but are going to be this culturally disinterested, then what do I why 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 am I playing to to them? Why am I playing to their to their tastes and then and i think that's what sparked that's what made me realize oh everyone's actually trying to tell a story we think that the comedians on there telling our story and the reviewers come and they listen and they think this is a good story or this is a bad story what the what the reviewers actually doing they, they have their own story to tell they're coming you are their material you they're not they're not objective assessors you are their material they're writing their own show which is their collection of reviews over the their in the papers over the course of their reviewing careers, they're telling their own story. They're trying to mold the the the, the taste. They're trying to mold the the root of of art of comedy of whatever it is they're reviewing. They're trying to mold the path um, to what they think it should be or what where they think the culture's taking it. And so really, they're just trying to use your show as a stepping stone. Your show is just a part of their story. Once I realized that, once I realized you're just a part of their story, then I thought, well, there's not very much I can do about it because they've got their story already set, right? And you, you could, yeah, I, started, I, was, I was soon able to detect that I could predict people who are going to end up on, say, the Edinburgh Comedy Shortlist, a uh, Comedy Awards Shortlist from the hype they were getting uh, before the festival started. And I was able to do this with my own sketch group, Daphne, in 2015. I knew before the, the Fringe started that we were going to get nominated for Best Newcomer because it fitted the story. It fitted the story of the, the publications who had said before the Fringe, these are guys to watch. It fitted the story of the small, you know, of the sketch comedy award we'd won, like a very minor one. And then that's when I realized, oh, they're telling a story. And you get rewarded if you happen to fit into their story, right? And and when we were nominated, I I, I wasn't thrilled. I was just like, yeah, I, I knew, I know. I knew this was coming because we would have had to do really badly, I think, in order not to get yeah. nominated because, <laughs> because we'd already right. been written into the story, yeah. right? And I think once I realized that, I was able to go, everyone's just trying to tell the story. 
if you fit into the story, great. If you don't, do your own story. It doesn't matter. Um, so that, that that's where I that's where I stand with. That's uh, a, it's it's an incredibly emotionally mature perspective, but also it's very wise to like talk about it like that because it's such a like spot on perspective, and it then frees everything up a little you're like well yes of course and the characters within what i do are just my version of their story as well it's not a documentary i'm not you know it's incredible okay so let's rewind let's go back to you were at were you at cambridge university is that where you were cambridge yeah yeah so the footlights right the very famous cambridge footlights you were part of that am i right that's right yeah. So, were you aware of the sort of prestigious history of the Cambridge Footlights? Like, is it one of those? It's hard for me as someone who's not from that culture, but has only heard of it, you know, secondhand through the, you know, the stars you see come through there. Does it have this cultural significance still? Did it have when you came through? Can you explain a little of what that was like? Yeah. Well, I mean, the Footlights are the, the, it's the Cambridge University Comedy Society that. Uh, I mean, the first sort of great year that people think talk about is uh, Stephen Fry, Emma Thompson, Hugh Laurie, who won the first Edinburgh Comedy Award in ooh, the seventies. I don't know, um, but it's especially since then it's been this this great society that all not not all obviously that many great British comedians come through: Mitchell and Webb, you know, Richard Ayoade. Tim Key, um, uh, just lots and lots. It, it, it's kind of like the British comedy Illuminati. Like you look around <laughs> on a show from time to time, you'll go, oh, there's three of us today. And, you know, we give each other this little nod, but we never meant to talk about it because it's gauche. But we are like, <laughs> you know, we're like the, we're like the, the Freemasons. And... And I, I'd heard about it from my mum growing up in Malaysia. My mum went to Cambridge. She was the first, no, she was the second year of women allowed, um, which is wild to think about, you know. Wow. She was the second year of women allowed at a college. And since then, I always, I always held Cambridge in, in quite high regard. And then I became obsessed with comedy. And my, my mother told me about the footlights. And then I moved to the UK and I became obsessed with stand-up and comedy. And, and I, I applied to Cambridge as much to do comedy as to do engineering, which was my subject. It was very good for engineering. But more than almost more than that, I desperately wanted to be part of the comedy scene. And when I when I arrived at Cambridge, I just threw myself right into it and auditioned for for everything comedy related. I started my own gig in my college, and because loads of colleges had their own gigs, you ended up with a sort of university circuit. And I was able to practice and and work out stand up and and write sketches for the footlights and yeah it, it, it more than anything it was just like practice no one it's hard to think of anywhere else at that age where you get that much practice just performing new comedy again and again and again and again so you come out of the you come out of university with so much more practice than anyone else your age and that that was that was the great gift of it really it, it i'd say that sounds incredible honestly it sounds like it actually sounds like a complete fantasy. The idea that you like there is an internal circuit at this like university that you can learn how to perform. But 
Is it also because of how famous the footlights are? Is there a cultural currency on campus for being part of that? Like uh, people who are involved in the footlights, like stars on the, on, you know, as part of the college? Uh, on the campus, on, you know, yeah. Yeah, they, they really, they, they still have their, the footlights still have their, their name and their regard and you know the the shows almost all just basically always sell out that's such a privilege you know to, to be part of something with such a history and legacy and name that you show you don't even really have to market the shows they just sell out all the time you just get practice from sellout crowds that, that really spoiled me for the first couple of years of my career i can tell you that um but even then they prepared you for comedy critics in the actual real world because even then like the student journalists at the university paper would would try to give the footlights a bad review because they had this name because they were sort of establishment because people expected them to be good student reviewers would go 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 they're going hmm the footlights tried to be funny <laughs> did they did they achieve it <laughs> well this reviewer thinks not and they're reviewing, they start reviewing the idea of the footlights instead of like just the uh -huh. fellow 18 year olds who are there or uh -huh. on stage. And so that kind of prepared, prepares, pre prepared me for the critical world of like people, again, having the story to tell, about reviewers having a story to tell. And the, the, the more interesting story for them was that the footlights weren't as good as, as the name suggested. Um, but that was a very minor part of it. Overall, people were so supportive and so excited. At that age, you're just so excited for yourselves and excited for each other. Yeah, it, I, I owe it everything, really, I think. I mean, it sounds amazing. So you talk about the idea of, like, you have this experience, but you're also studying, like, as, as you said, engineering. Um, did, did you have a sense when you were doing this that you were probably going to, pursue comedy more than you were going to pursue engineering or was it still like a two horse race at that point and yeah it was probably two horse race for the first year and then i i didn't get a first in my first year which is the highest grade you can get mm. and so i thought well fuck it then <laughs> if, if i've already if, if i've already missed out on the perfect score i might as well you know lean hard into the comedy <laughs> oh, well, that, that seems like a pretty healthy attitude <laughs> <laughs> yeah it worked out in the end but there was a, a very high likelihood that it wouldn't that would have just ruined my life having that attitude to things but uh, it, it, the comedy basically eventually overtook the engineering and engineering started to feel like a day job that i just had to complete to stay at university to stay at cambridge and to, to do comedy yeah. Uh, so okay, so you you finish at university. What happens next? Then you talked about comedy competitions. Was this when the comedy yeah. competitions started? Well, I started quite early on. So in my second year, I, I I joined and won the big student competition in the UK, which is the Total Student Comedian Award. And so and I won that. And there was one, my the person who ended up my first manager was one of the judges. And so at 2021, I was signed to one of the biggest agencies in, in the UK, probably maybe prematurely, but I still had two years of engineering to do. So, you know, I, had this, I was in this weird position where I was doing my engineering degree and then from time to time, my agent from London would come down to the student theater to see, watch a show, you know, it was, 
It's very peculiar, but very exciting. But what it meant was that I sort of had a, 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 a an early start. And when I moved to London, I did a bit of tutoring in maths and physics, but I was already... I was already playing circuit gigs and already getting my name out there and and yeah so I had I had um I I, I had uh, what's a, an early what's a, what's the term for an early start I can't even think today I haven't had my porridge I mean you've had half your porridge let's be honest like it's... a leg a leg <laughs> so I've had like two I don't think this porridge is good for good for me <laughs> I don't even know what's in it it's just like sweet sludge. Um, so, I, well, I'm, I'm interested in how that made you accepted in the in the comedy scene. So, if you're like you know starting to establish yourself in like the the comedy circuit, are you seen as being you know this sort of precocious talent? Are you well accepted? Like, are people? Are, are, yeah, what's the scene like? Is is it open? Is it friendly? Or are you? Like, you know, some young punk who's like, you know, come in and won a competition while you're still studying at university, you know, you know prematurely above, you know, above your station. Like, what's the general attitude? How did you find it as a person going into that scene? I think people my age were very supportive. We were all very supportive of each other. I think we're just all so excited to be part mm. of this thing. The From time to time, you know, you'd be, I'd be in the green room and there'd be like, There'd be an older. Can you do you swear on this podcast? Yeah, you can. Yeah, you can swear. Right, yes. there'd be a store cunt, which is like a comedy yeah. store veteran. <laughs> I mean, I'm, sure, I mean, you went straight to the the c word. That's no, fine. You but can say Austra- that. It's like in Australia, <laughs> yeah, that, that word yeah. just means guy, right? Uh, yeah, no, I, it's fine. It's <laughs> also like- it's my podcast, Phil. It's fine. People have heard the word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there'd be a store cunt. There'd be like uh, an old g- g- bald guy in a suit yeah. who you know mm. played been playing the comedy store for decades and was yeah. sure that this that was that you know, and, and they always were very. Mm eagle-eyed about some precocious young buck coming through and you know I'd, I'd sit in the room and you know I looked a bit foreign I sounded a bit American because of my international upbringing and <laughs> you know uh, I was young and with a big agency and people always give me a sort of side eye but then I get on stage and I do well and usually the store comes would then give me some respect you know so there was a little bit of that but for the most part, I think I was so like blinded by the excitement of it that I didn't really didn't care about. I didn't see any negativity. I, I just, I was, I was just so enamored by it all, and excited by it all, and you know, discovering London in the in the in the night. You know, traveling throughout London, going to these cavernous rooms, and and being part of these secret little spaces. It was so thrilling and so exciting. I couldn't do it now. I, I I think about God. You mind starting now? I'm like I don't have the energy. I wouldn't. I'd be like, no way. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not traveling to York. I'm not driving to York for a hundred quid. Uh, but back then, I was like, yeah, I'll do it. I don't give a shit. I'll I'll do a gig in a bin. I don't care. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> I, was, I, I, I that enthusiasm, and excitement, just steamrolled over any negativity that that might that might have been there. 
Uh, okay, so who, why did you have all this excitement? Where did it come from? Like, had you been inspired by, like, had you grown up liking comedy or loving comedy or was it the performance aspect of it that you were excited? Like, what particular aspect of it was exciting to you? I think it was that I finally found a space in which I could be open and express myself and be funny because I... I I, I was always very shy as a kid. I'm not very good in social dynamic, in social situations. Uh, in big social groups, I'm, I'm really bad. I, 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 it makes me very nervous to try and be funny in a group of people or sit down with a group of people and chat. And then when I was 17, 18, I discovered this form where I could get on stage and people had to listen to me. Mm. And then I, I was talking for a set amount of time. And by the end of those minutes, I was done. I didn't have to talk yeah. to anyone. And people would come up and go, that was good. Mm. You talked well. <laughs> and I, I found that so thrilling. <laughs> uh, maybe I'm autistic. I don't know. But no, man, I, I totally get that. You understand what the rules of the engagement are. This is like, it. There are rules. Right? There, like, there's a structure. This is what it is. There's a structure. That, like, And you can, you can assess at the end whether it's gone well or not gone well. Like, I totally people, respond to what you're saying. If people interrupt you, they get kicked out. Mm. That's so good. Right. That's the best. <laughs> I wish I could do that in everyday life. I wish that if anyone, if someone interrupted me just in conversation, I'd go, get him out of here. And someone yeah, just comes you, up and picks him up. Excuse me, and, could you get rid of this guy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what I liked about it, I think. Uh, did you have a sense of what it was you were trying to achieve other than like obviously those social aspects of being listened to while you talked was there something in particular that you were trying to say that was you know did you feel like there was something that was unique to you on stage that differentiated you from other people yeah I was trying to represent um, East Asian people in comedy basically that I thought there, there wasn't a there wasn't any East Asian person in British comedy when I started. And I I think that's what thrilled me about it was being the first in that sense and and representing Asian people, Chinese people. And you know what, since then so many more have come through. There's so many East Asian comedians more well, not so many, there's four. But that's a lot more than when I started. <laughs> it's, four, you know. it's four times as many. It's like 400% it is, it is. more. It's a 400% increase. <laughs> and and now I sort of, you know, I sort of look, look at them and I go, my work is done. And I put on my hat and I walk into the sun. <laughs> but I, so I don't really have that anymore because there is more representation, which is great, I guess. I mean, I have to say that. Um, but it doesn't mean I don't have that same thrill anymore. Yeah, so now it's not really about that anymore. But from time to time, I still get someone say, you know, that my my representing East Asians was important to them and it meant something, and so that that feels really good. Um, but that that I think that when I think about it, that was my driving um, impulse when I that's, when I first that's started. Super interesting to me because. You know, there's often people will say, you know, if you can see it, you can be it, right? Like that idea that, you know, that you saw somebody who looked like you or sounded like you do something and therefore you thought, okay, 
I can do this. Like I even think, I mean, I grew up on a dairy farm on a road that was named after my grandfather who built the road. My dad's lived on that road all his life, right? Like from a place where there's 250 people. How did I think I could be a stand-up comedian? I think that when I looked at stand-up comedians, regardless of the fact that they were from, you know, all over the world, they kind of still looked like me, you know, that like a lot of them were white men. So I guess there was just a part of my brain that thought, well, even though like I'm from this tiny little farm or this tiny little place, I can do this thing. But for you, was there an equivalent of that? Or was it literally the idea of, no, no, there is no one who looks like me and sounds like me. Therefore, that is what is driving me. I think so. Yeah. And maybe that's, that's the egotist in me. Like if there had yeah. been an East Asian I mean, yes, guy it does sound that. a little like that, yeah. A little, you know? <laughs> you know? I'm like, well, someone's already been on the moon. Well, yeah. well who, what's the point? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I had sort of ten... I had sort of tangential representation yeah. in that sense. There was Harith Iskandar was the first stand-up I ever saw live when I was a kid. I went with my mum to a, um, a medical conference because that's the kind of fun kid I was. <laughs> and the what I now understand to have been the corporate entertainment <laughs> mm-hmm. was Harith Iskandar, who's considered sort of the grandfather of Malaysian comedy. He's the first guy in Malaysia to do it. So he's half Malay and half white. And so he's the first stand-up I saw as a kid, and I was like, what is going on here? He's just getting up on stage and talking. That's pretty wild. That's pretty cool. And then later on, um, when I was a teenager, and uh, during the birth of YouTube, people started sharing Russell, um, Russell Peters clips, and he's Canadian-Indian. And I thought, well, okay, so South Asians, people of South Asian descent are able to do stand-up. And then... And then, I, and then I started watching some more mainstream American stand-up and British stand-up, and I thought, well, Harith Iskandar and Russell Peters can do it. I guess I could do it. And so I guess I, in that way, I was able to see it and be it through them. But, I, but there was, I was still different enough that I was able to go, and I can be the first in my own sense, right? Maybe that was the Goldilocks point. That was the, 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 ideal, the ideal place for me. Was that it can be done, but also you'd kind of be the first, and that really played into my egotism. <laughs> so, it played, so my 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 fears were abated by Harith Iskandar and Russell Peters, but also my egotism was satisfied by their. And so, be the first. so then, like, is there a temptation to? like fit into a pre-existing world, like adapt aspects of your personality to fit into this world of like stand-up and live performance? Or is there this sense of, no, I have this thing that is unique about me. I am going to lean into the idea of what makes me different rather than try to assimilate to what is already going on. When you when you first started out, and I guess like what has your journey been in regard to that? Was it about, no, no, I'm going to like, the fact that I am different is my unique selling point in all this? Or was there an element of I've got to, I don't know, try to fit into this pre-existing system? I was, it was very much about me carving my own path, I think, and talking about stuff that, yeah, stuff that happened. Yeah, yeah, it's just yeah, doing my own thing. Really, there wasn't really anything I was trying to to emulate, which I think is why at the Edinburgh Fringe, you know, I always actually struggled a bit with an hour long show because I just wanted to do things I thought were funny, 
but the stuff that really does well there has a story to it and all this kind of structure and a bit where everyone cries and there was one <laughs> when one year i tried to make one of those shows and it was a disaster it was so bad it's the worst thing i've ever made and so since then i went i'm not gonna try and be something i'm just gonna I'm not going to try and be something that I've seen or that I think people want. I just have to do what I think is funny. And it's been much better since. Uh, I ask people on this show if they have a life philosophy of any kind. It can be in relation to anything, but it is the central conceit, the hook of this podcast, if you will. So, it, like, if I don't ask it, people get mad. I don't know, actually, if people do get mad, Phil. I just imagine in my own mind that if I don't ask it, people will get mad because that is what motivates me to keep asking it to people. So do you have a life philosophy of any kind? I feel like I have a few that I, I change right. from time to time. One, yeah, one like that's really helped. One is that uh, no one cares. No one cares. That this is a very good one. I mean, when I start worrying about something or like, <laughs> or like, oh, did I do that thing right? Or, or, or uh, did they think I was an idiot? Did did I come across well? I just go. No one cares. No one was paying attention to you. People, people worry about their own shit. No one cares. <laughs> and, you know, like, and and, and with, this is good with comedy because like, if you do a bad show. The, I find the kindest thing about comedy is also the cruelest thing about comedy, which is that you'll be forgotten. You know, if you do something bad, people just don't watch it. They won't. They won't remember. It's as it's like it never happened. And also, no one cares. No one cares. No one gives a shit. <laughs> people are doing their own shit. No one cares. No one cares about you. And it's not people don't. It's not that. They, it's not that people don't care about you because there's something wrong with you. People don't no. care about you because they're busy. They got their own shit. No one cares. No one cares about Joe Biden and he's president of the United States. You know, no one cares. It's so true. I find that, this I find is that the helps. Best. <laughs> another another philosophy that mm. I started and it's along the similar vein is that I'll be I'm gonna be I'm gonna be dead. I'm gonna be dead. Uh-huh. And this is this is something when now recently I've started saying to myself, I go, oh no, I didn't, I missed the discount on the, I didn't yeah. put in the code. I could have got 10 pounds off mm. that purchase. Do I go back and try to, and then I'll just go, you're going to be dead. Yeah. And think, oh yeah. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then I just move on with my life. <laughs> and just go, you're going to die. You're going to die in like a couple of a few decades like, like a handful soon. of decades you'll be dead yeah and you're gonna what will you will you, uh, when you're dying are you gonna think about that 10 pounds you didn't get a discount on and you go oh yeah um, so my two yeah. life philosophies I, I love it I no one cares and you're gonna no die. one cares and you're gonna be dead <laughs> well i love it like I love it and I would add, I would add an extra one whatever the problem is like I love both of these by the way I respond to these so much like I think these are perfect philosophies and the other one is whatever this problem is is like a new problem like in history like most of the things I get mad at you know like you said the coupon or the ten dollar you know blah 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 that is a problem that a most people on this planet, like aren't like most people of the population of people who are alive on this planet aren't 
even dealing with coupons or money or like what, you know, they're in some life situation that doesn't even mean they have the luxury of whatever this problem is that you have. And also yeah. in the history of humans, this is only this like discount or thing or voucher or whatever has existed for such a small amount of like the time <laughs> of being a human. Like it's not, it's like this problem is like been around for a minute. This, no one cares. You're going to die. And this problem is just like a, new problem that no one cares about <laughs> like it doesn't right, matter yeah. right right so you're saying like this isn't some yeah. ancient philosophical no. conundrum that we've been grappling with for eras but the whole world just- got to here without anyone like it doesn't matter whatever just happened doesn't matter because everything that's happened to get you to here happened like it doesn't matter i love it this is when i was a kid I'd look up at the stars, you know, mm. and and think about the vastness of the the yeah. universe, and it would give me comfort to think mm. that I was insignificant. And yeah. then I'm surprised to hear that it depressed people to look at the stars and consider in our, our insignificance. But it comforts me to feel insignificant because then your mis- your mistakes they're not important. Maybe Mate, that's the kind I, of I, I, I sometimes think this in a day where two celebrities die, and like. Do you know what I mean? Like, so in the, there's some day where, like, you know, two, or two people who've done, you know, achieved big things. And if you just happen to be the second most famous person who died that day, no one really cares oh, about anything you did yeah. in your life. Like, Isn't that brutal? Like, Isn't that brutal? <laughs> do, you, do you ever play this thought experiment? Is like, if I died, would I be on the news? Would yeah. it be on the news? Would they have, would they be like, comedian phil wang today died and i think i would currently because mm. i'm quite young mm. and they'd be like yeah. oh god but i think i think in 10 years i don't think i'll make the news i don't think you know what i mean mm. oh, there's a so the, the tv the tv awards the equivalent of like i guess the baftas or whatever right in australia is a thing called the logies right. and i've done television Hello. long enough in australia now that when i die I will be in the in memoriam. If I died now and I was in the in memoriam, people might even clap when I came up. But in 20 years, I'll just be one of the faces that most of the people in the room go, who was that? Like, I'll be in it, but no one will really care that I'm in it. <laughs> oh, man. That's reminding that. <laughs> Who was that? Well, one L? Did they, is there a typo in that? They had a show for 20 uh, years. I don't remember him. <laughs> yeah, I, I, that reminded me. I was at uh, the Montreal Comedy Festival last year. And we went to, there was an event that was like an in memoriam of the comedians who had died that year. And it had been, you know, it had been um, a relatively big year because like Norm MacDonald had died. Mm-hmm. And, oh, I mean, this is, who else? Uh, it was Norm MacDonald and, ah, there were a couple of big names last year, who uh, comedians last year who had died. Mm, kind of and proving, kind of proving the point that we're making. I right know, now. I know, <laughs> right? I know. But but let's say there were like seven. Yeah. There were seven big names who had, yeah. who had died last year, and there's an event for them, and talking about those. There's a little montage, and it's Norm Macdonald and a couple other guys who died, and 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 then there was it's a really long list, and there's all these people, and about two thirds way of the way through this list of people who died, people started going. Huh? Like the applause has started like waning, you know. Mm-hmm. Huh. And then, as a finale, they the, the, as a finale, this bar descended, mm-hmm. and all these hockey jerseys were on this bar, 
And on each hockey jersey was the name of a comedian who died. And obviously, Norm Macdonald was there. And five of the other top names were there. And then, but that was it. There's like six, six tops, six, so six or seven hockey jerseys with the six or seven most famous people who had died that year. But we'd just been through a list of like 50 people who had died. And everyone is sort of clapping and watching, sort of watching these hockey jerseys come down. But you could feel every comedian in the room quietly thinking to themselves, will I be on a hockey jersey? Will I, am I going to be on a shirt when I die? Yeah. Will I make the shirt? Will I make the shirt? And sometimes I think that now. Like, am I going to make a shirt? Am I going to yeah. make... Will I be on the shirt? I'm not making the shirt. Not in Montreal. And I've been like a dozen <laughs> times. And I'm not getting a shirt. I might get the, like- fift- the 50. I might get in the 50. <laughs> but I'm not getting a shirt. But you'll get in on an Melbourne, AFL jersey. Yeah, in Melbourne, I'll be on a shirt. Like, don't get me wrong. Like... <laughs> But then I was thinking, well, I don't think I'll be on. Will I be on a shirt here in the UK? Will I be on a, a fucking blood-soaked football top or some fucking hooligan top? Will I be, you know, will I make a cricket sort of jumper? Will I be on anything? Yeah, I'm not. I don't think I watch enough sport to be on a, a sporting a piece of sporting clothing. But I, mean, I, I think about I, that all the time. I was like, because I don't, I mean, look, I I have no, I don't really care about being remembered. Like, I think it's such a ridiculous thing to care about. And if in anything, there's part of me that would love to be just like forgotten immediately. Like, you know, that once you're dead, like you just kind of, everyone just completely forgets you immediately. I actually find that more, a more comforting thought than the idea that like in 20 years from now, people are going to be going back over something that I did 30 years ago and going, this doesn't really stand up. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. And I'm not around to defend myself. I'm dead. Stop going through my stuff and having a look at it. I actually, but it was, it was interesting that um, there was someone, a legend of Australian rules football, like probably the most famous name in the history of the competition, like died recently. And they're, considering naming either the Premiership Cup or the Premiership Medallions after him, which is, you know, as big as an honour that you could get in the game, you know. But it, it just – I'm like, if you'd done it like a month ago, he could have enjoyed that. Like, you know, right. it's your, his That's reward funny. for the service that he's given to the game. Yet, yeah. Like, it, like he's it's not weird. around like to a see it, like or that enjoy for it, it or appreciate it's it. It's for everyone else, isn't it? It's for everyone yeah. else, that gesture. It's not even for the yeah. dead person. Yeah, it's like you, well, maybe you know, if I die, if I died at the Melbourne Comedy Festival now, they'd probably name something after me, but it wouldn't do me anything. <laughs> it would, you know what I mean? Like I get nothing out of it. What 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 do you, what do you want named after you at the Melbourne Comedy Festival? <laughs> which 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 building? I mean, yeah, like the the high five bar or something, right? Oh, that'd be nice. <laughs> yeah, the I'd want one theater. of the trams. I'd want one of the trams. Oh, yeah, named yeah. After me. That's we good. we caught the fill here. Like yeah. one of them just has my face on it. I think that'd be nice. Um, on my deathbed, you, I just want—I yeah, want like my loved ones to just tell, just make up shit. Just they might as well just tell me they're naming the O2 Arena after me. Just tell me like they're actually name they they're, they're changing the name of comedy to uh, uh, Wangism, you know. Yep. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm so old and yeah. and like my mind's so gone. I'm like, oh, that's nice. That's amazing. You know, I like I believe them. Because what does it matter? I'm not going to know. I'm going to be dead. I'm going to be dead and no one cares. 
<laughs> they're now calling something that's hilarious, filarious. That that's what they're doing now. That's it's <laughs> oh, after you. Excellent. Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> oh, that's nicer, darling. Thank you. Yeah, tell me anything. I don't care. <laughs> Just patting your hand. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I'm very fascinated by um, uh, like, yeah, the idea of how much you look back on things that you've done previously and like how much do you – are you fine to leave what you've done in the past in the past or are you the sort of person who looks back on stuff that you've done previously and I mean, I look, there's a natural progression. Clearly I'm being able to say, Hey, I did this thing and I would like to be better. This is how you, you know, build a career and you like, you know, get better at what you do. But like, what is your process of, are you haunted by your past work? Are you comfortable yeah. with your past work? Like what's, what's your personality in relation to those things? My personality is that I only remember the things I did badly. I only remember. Yeah the mistakes and the failures i i have to make a conscious effort to remind myself of the things that have gone well of things that were good but the things that went badly like that third edinburgh show where i tried to make an edinburgh show and i think about it all the time i think about all my mistakes all the time they're this they're like burnt into my into my memory they're never coming out and the good things I I just forget all the time. I never I never think about the good things. So I'm trying to be conscious of that. I'm trying not to let let it overwhelm me. I I I guess I learn from my mistakes, uh, and that's that's the the positive aspect of only remembering your mistakes is that you you, try, you tend not to repeat them. Um. So yeah, I, I try. I just try everything I do. I just try and make it better than the last version of that. And I'm never happy with anything. I'm only ever relieved when something big happens. You know, when I when I do a you know, Live of the Apollo or Netflix special or at the end I'm never like, woohoo! I've, I've never ever gone woohoo in my life. I only ever go, oh, whew, whew. So that's all I can hope for from my career is that I do something that I'm relieved, relieved by. And I go, oh, okay, I didn't fuck that up. Oh, okay, great. Uh, no one died. So I... I couldn't respond to this more like i don't think i've like i mean the idea that i've just got away with something is the the best that i could ever hope for something it's like it's either like terrible and will haunt me forever or oh thank god i got away with that yeah right? exactly. like, that's about it that's about as good as i can go but do you think because i think as i get older and i don't know if you know this phil but like i'm gonna be dead soon we're all gonna be dead soon we're all gonna die uh um, no one cares, no one cares. How, how do like <laughs> Is it, how do you enjoy yourself? How do you sell, like, I mean, like, do you think that you are depriving yourself of, like, enjoyment that you should actually be having? Like, would it be better if you could enjoy your successes more than you do? Yeah, I, it would be nice, but you can't force yourself into it. You can't make yourself happy, which I think it's something I've realized, and this is another, if you'll, if you'll let me rejig the name of this podcast a f instead of a philosophy, a philosophy. Does this word I exist? 
I love it so much. <laughs> this is brilliant. I love a pun that is actually just the same word as the original word. <laughs> in many ways, is the ideal pun. This is a pun that's in the briefcase in in Pulp Fiction. The perfect pun. It's just glowing in Samuel L. Jackson's face. Um, <laughs> it's the purest pun. I I think what I believe is that ha- ha- people always try and pursue happiness, but happiness is not something that you can have. Happiness is not something you achieve. Happiness is happiness happens to you. It just happens to you, and all you can do is try and set down the foundations where happiness is likely to happen. But you you can't make it happen. It just happens. It's just. A nice meal that happens, or a nice thing that someone says at one point, or you happen to be walking along a hill, and you and the sunset's nice, and the breeze blows, and it smells good, and you see a deer, and happiness happens to you for a bit, or or you make a new friend by accident, or you happen to sleep well. Or happiness just happens to you. You can't really... And I think people drive themselves crazy trying to... I think the pursuit of happiness is um, a misleading phrase because you can't... You can't pursue it. You might as well try and chase a cloud. You can't can't pursue happiness. You can only... You can only set down foundations for security. Um, But happiness just kind of has to happen to you. And I think that has freed me a little bit... Okay. I, 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 okay. No, I love this. This is good stuff. But then when happiness happens, so like if you're not, if you distance yourself from the pursuit of happiness, are you then able to be open to when happiness accidentally bumps into you in the way that you're talking about? Are you able to appreciate that good yeah. night of sleep or the, that- the, the deer on the hill? Are you open to those things? Can you recognize those things in the moment and actually appreciate them? I'm I'm not very good at that, and I sometimes wonder if co- comedy has ruined my brain. In, in in because there's nothing more embarrassing in comedy than earnestness, and I find <laughs> it very hard to be earnest about things. You know, I just think, oh, look at this dweeb. <laughs> oh, you like you like the sunset, do you? Oh, you, loser. you know. Oh, you're in love, are you? You piece of shit. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Who do you think you are? Yeah, so it's a hard, kind of hard to, and that, that voice in me is very, very strong. So I always have to keep an eye on that, I, you know. Um, Phil, I want to talk to you about, I hope this is okay to talk to you about, but I want to talk to you about Taskmaster. Can we talk about Taskmaster? Oh, is that all right? Yeah, of course. Because um, I am, and speaking of happiness, like I am, like it's one of the few television shows in the entire world that I can just, enjoy i i find that television program to be just pure happiness i don't sit there and try to work out like i think it's one of the best constructed tv shows of all time but i loved your series of taskmaster i found it absolutely joyful like quite famously you wore an outfit that like like showed your genitals a fair bit like Mm. were you like can i ask were you aware were you aware going into the show like how much of your crotch people were going to be able to see for the entire series no, of Taskmaster. As surprising as it might be, I th- I thought I'd look quite good. I thought I'd look quite good in the 
because it's an homage to Bruce Lee, uh-huh. the Game of Death, yeah. and you know, in photos where he's wearing it, mm. his dick and balls aren't showing at all. And I right. so I assumed, oh, <laughs> I guess I look like that. And and I started the first day, and the mm. the crew are just like giggling the whole time, but because they never. They're like a National Geographic yeah. crew. They're like they're, yeah. they're, they're prevented from mm. from intervening with nature. Right. They just have to let you go, you know. And no one's really said anything. They sort of just sort of giggled. And then it's only the first group task day where where it's me, Rod Gilbert, and James Acaster working <laughs> together on tasks. That I turn up and they look at me and they just go, "What the fuck are you wearing?" And that's the first time I become aware of myself. And it was like. It was like Adam and Eve eating the apple and becoming aware of shame for the first time. Because you can see in that episode that I'm sort of covering my crotch for the first time in the show and that I'm clearly like self-aware and ashamed. I feel, yeah, because the, the snake has given me the apple and now everyone can see my snake and apple, if you know what I'm saying. Uh, yeah, but I, well, I was meant to look cool. I, wanted, I thought I'd look cool. How did somebody who, you know, is a self-confessed... Like you know, did not get a first in engineering, therefore thought that engineering wasn't worth doing. Um, <laughs> when you go on a show like that, where often the tasks can be, like I mean, again, the great thing about the show is, regardless of how good you are at some of the tasks, there will be something else that you will absolutely not be good at. How did you find that process? Like you know, in your world, did you find it? like fun to do did you find it like challenging to not be able to master these things like you know how did your brain like react to the whole the whole conceit of it i found it tough because every day i felt like i was being driven to an exam and it was exciting but also i was like i just hope i pass the exam i hope i do okay (laughs) and in, in isolation you think oh I've done quite well here. And then in the studio, you watch it, you watch it back and you go, oh, that was really bad. And then sometimes you you, you think, oh, I didn't do that well. And you watch in the studio and go, oh, I actually won. Like, I won the best noise by just going. <laughs> and I I thought, I, I and all I did was sit in the caravan for like half an hour and think about noises and then leave the caravan and go, okay, here it is. And the others, when I watched, they'd like James had got like a guitar and a ball and was smashing mm. it together, and people were like building Rube Goldberg machines and shit. And I was like, oh shit! All I did was st- stand outside the caravan and go, and then, and then I did it, and people loved it, and I won by just going. So that, so that I was like, oh, that's surprising. That's a nice surprise. But then something like there was a task where we had to hit a particular weight on a scale by putting things on it. We had to get this exact weight and it was like point something kilograms. And the engineer in me activated and I go, well, the only the the, uh, the mass that is you, you can you can control of continuous weight is liquid. So I'll, I'll fill a bucket of water and I'll be able to get exactly there. And I was so thrilled with that solution i thought i'm i'm, I'm a shoe in and then we get in the studio and watch the tasks back and james acaster just threw furniture at a scale and got it to the the weight somehow quicker than me because he just chucked stuff on it but my my solution was so elegant mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. i was that and i thought elegance has nothing to do with this 
but fortunately for me, I'm not competitive. There's a thing I've learned in my life. I care about being clever and being seen as clever, but I'm not competitive about anything else. I don't mind if someone beats me in a competition. I don't mind if someone's faster than me, stronger than me, better at football. Great for them. I'm really not competitive. And so I don't have the spark that makes me think, I got to win, I got to win, I got to win. I just don't have it. I, I want people to think I'm clever, but aside from that, I'm not competitive, which I think is quite freeing. But also, I feel like I could do with sometimes. I think I think it I think it's, it spurs you on competitiveness. It it I mean it's interesting to me because like particularly on a show like Taskmaster, like you know just using it as a general like metaphor for life in general, is that the judgment you talk about that idea of going to an exam, but also you're going to an exam where the person who is assessing the exam assesses on a like group of markers that aren't explained to you before you go into the exam. So you actually don't know how it's going to be assessed at the end of it. It is often assessed on a whim, you know, so that that takes that element of like, it's not a true competition in that sense in like, because in a true competition, you at least know what it is that, you know, that the assessment of the comp, like, you know, in a game of football, that the team that has the most goals at the end of the game yes, will be yes. considered the winner. Right. The referee's not going to come out at the end and go, well, that team only scored one goal, but it was much more stylish than the two goals the other <laughs> team. So I'm actually going to give them the victory. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't work like that. That is what annoyed me is the lack of objectivity around Tasmas and there's so much down to yeah. Greg's wins. <laughs> you yeah. know, and um, they got to a point where he just picked up a momentum of giving me low marks mm. and there were a couple of times mm. where he just went okay well phil gets one and I'm like why mm. <laughs> why and he i think he's since said that he's <laughs> he's since said on another podcast that he was too mean to me yeah. so i have it mm. i have it on record that greg davis was too mean to me have you done the australian one no but i, I mean i would i would absolutely love to honestly because not because i think i would be good at it because i don't think that i would be because i actually love the idea of not like I, I would find it delightful. Like there's, there's, I, I, the person I've most related to, in, like when I've watched any of the series is Jenny Eclair was like, uh, 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 on her series, because every time she would go to the, one of the tasks, she would just be so excited. She would just be like, well, this looks fun. And that's every time I see them, that's what I think too. I've always been quite a big fan of reality shows like as in like survivor or any of these sort of things but i never would do any of the those versions of those shows like it's not but but I, there's a part of me that would love to know how i would go at those things and i think that like taskmaster feels like the safest version of that which is you get to just see how you would go at these things when there's no actual stakes and if you are terrible it, then that as long as it's funny then that is absolutely fine like i don't know i find the whole show very a very comforting show to watch for that reason i think it's because it's a bit like you were saying no one cares and we're all going to die <laughs> and these tasks that we're doing are absolutely pointless our life is filled with pointless tasks That's that it. we do until we die right this this is such an interesting take on taskmaster it's yeah. it's actually a show about a nihilism yeah <laughs> it's a nihilistic show it's nothing matters in the end you'll be judged yeah. on a completely yeah. arbitrary value system yeah. that you can't because greg davis is god mm. and god is unfair mm. 
and God doesn't actually care about you. No. And no matter how hard you try in life, which are which are which are the tasks, ultimately you'll be judged by a capricious uh, tyrant who will decide on a whim whether or not you go to heaven or hell. So really, it doesn't matter what you do in life because, as I've said before, as a wise man once said, <laughs> no one cares and you're going to be dead. As a wise man once said about 20 minutes ago, uh, <laughs> Phil Wang, uh, answer me this. I, I like to ask people what they think happens when we die. Do you think about it? What do you think happens when we die? I hope nothing. I think nothing and I hope nothing happens. I hope it's just the same as bef- before you were born which is probably what it is you know it's just blackness not aware and that that seems to me at peace i'm terrified that i'm gonna die and wake up in front of the pearly gates Mm -hmm. and saint peter (laughs) and i'll be like ah no all those wanks i had were ironic i was Uh, really i was really banking on the fact that this wasn't a real thing Yeah, yeah. I paid my taxes. I did. Yes, I really hope it doesn't. Because I grew up with a terrible fear that I grew up in quite a religious um, country. And I always had this idea of hell in my head. And I I really hope it is just blackness. And it probably is. But we'll never know. Uh, can I ask you this question? Uh, if you had to know one or the other, so it's it's a hypothetical, of course, but if you had to know one or the other, would you prefer to know how you die or when you die? Uh, I would rather need not know either. Yeah, I know, but that's it's that's not an option. It's got to be one or the other. Gosh, maybe I want to know who. But then, hmm, maybe I want to know how I die. Because the, the answer will probably be something like heart failure. And you go, okay, that could be literally any time. That hasn't really uh, illuminated anything, really. But if it's, but then the danger is if it's just like truck. Yeah. How you die is truck. <laughs> yeah. And then I'm terrified. <laughs> no the more details. <laughs> truck. One word, truck. <laughs> Nothing else. Don't know if you're driving it, hit by it. No, yeah, no <laughs> details. No details at all, just truck. <laughs> then I just have to avoid trucks for the rest of my life and be terrified every time a truck drives past me. If anyone's like, do you want to drive this truck? I'm like, sorry, man, I can't explain why, but no, I don't want to drive the truck. Um, <laughs> but you couldn't even drive by a truck, like like in traffic. Anytime there was a truck around, you just like, would you develop a, a phobia of trucks, do you think, if it were a truck? Uh, yeah, for sure. I, yeah. I almost have a phobia of trucks now because of one years ago, I was driving up to a gig in the in north of England and we got on the motorway and the traffic and I and you're driving along, driving along, and I stopped at the service station, got a little snack, went to the toilet, and got back in the car and drove along back onto the motorway, and then and then the traffic started to slow down and the traffic came to a complete stop, and we were there for half an hour, an hour, an hour and a half, two hours, just sat, people were getting out, just waiting. And I, um, I, I'd call up the gig and say, I can't make it. The gig's starting like now and we're literally stuck in this traffic. 
and the organizer was like yeah the 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 comedian who's hosting is i think might just be a few cars ahead of you she can't make it either so we have to cancel the gig and then eventually this traffic starts moving again and we're fun we're you know we're allowed through and we have to turn around and there's a big 16 wheeler lorry and it's just completely across the road right and what had happened was this lorry had jackknifed and turned and run into a car, crushed it into the middle parting and killed the person who was in that car. And I think all the time, whenever I think of that, like, if I hadn't gone into the service station, I would have been a few cars up. You know, would I have, would, would I, would I have been that car? And so I, I'm already I'm already scared of trucks now. If one drives past me on the motorway, I'm like, can it just go? Am I am I one? Am I one service station stop away from just getting hit by a, a truck? And so I think if if I I asked that question and the answer was truck, I'd be like, I knew it. You know. <laughs> Man, that went a lot deeper than I thought it was going to be when we started on this truck riff. Um, what is the worst? <laughs> Sorry, but that's, that's this podcast, you know. I and and it goes back to my philosophy of no, no one cares, and you're gonna be dead. You're gonna be dead, man. You're gonna be dead. What is the worst or best piece of advice that you've ever got in your life? The best advice I've ever been given in my life. Uh, is a piece of advice my father gave me years ago. And it's the only piece of advice he's ever really given me, which is that if there's a napkin, if it's a spare napkin, paper napkin, put it in your pocket. Just put it in your pocket. You're going to need it eventually. You're going to need that napkin eventually. Something's going to spill. Something's going to get wet. You will never, you will never go. Ah, oh, I should never have put this paper napkin in my pocket. You will always eventually need it. If there's a napkin, put it in your pocket. If it, if your sandwich comes with extra paper napkins, put them. Don't throw them away. Put them in your pocket. You'll always need a napkin. That's that's the piece of advice my father gave me, and I'll pass that advice down to my kids. So that um, that might be the best piece of the best piece of practical advice I've ever been given. Oh, another great piece of advice is you'll it'll be better in the morning. This is something Fred's friend said said once when I was going through a tough time. He's like, "It'll be better in the morning," and it kind of always is better in the morning. You don't realize how how disastrous your thoughts get at night. Yeah, at nighttime yeah. you get really apocalyptic. When that happens, I go, oh, "It'll be better when I'm in the morning," and it's always better in the morning. So always put a paper paper napkin in your pocket, and it'll be better in the morning. Uh, those are two very good pieces of advice. Huh, I can't really think of a bad. You know, it's okay. That's good. I'm happy. I'm happy with both of those. I'm uh, sure there is one. I mean, I'm sure there is too. But I've got some more questions, and I we're getting towards the okay, end. Okay, so maybe maybe it'll come those. to me. Um, if you could wake up tomorrow and like you don't have to do your ten thousand hours to learn how to do this thing, you just have a skill, any sort of skill. You can interpret that however you want to interpret it. Um, but you wake up tomorrow and you are able to do something that you currently cannot do. What would you love to be able to do? I think sort of use my body in any impressive kind of way. I just can't. I've never been in control of this thing, you know. I would, like my my body's fine. 
I'm healthy enough, but I just, I, I was, to me, such an alien idea of having real control of your body, like to be an athlete, you know, to be able to, to jump and go, my foot is going to go there. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was wild to me. <laughs> and if I jump, I'm like, anyone's guess where this foot yeah. is landing. <laughs> Take your bets, folks. There, there are Japanese businessmen around me going, ah, just like throwing like yen bills at me and trying to, guessing where I'm going to land. Like the idea that you're, you know where your body's going to go when you do something, that's incredible. Uh, so I think sort of just general sort of physical ability would be really cool. Uh, two more questions and we're done, Phil Wang. Uh, c- what can we plug? Netflix special. Um, people can definitely Netflix special. Check that I've out got a still. book. I've got a book called Side Splitter. My special is still on Netflix. They haven't deleted it to free up space just yet. <laughs> Which is, you know, that's it. Must be at least mm-hmm. five gigs, and they're keeping mm-hmm. it on there. That's really nice of them. <laughs> um, and I'm on tour in Australia. I'm coming to Australia this November. Mm-hmm. I'll be. I'm going to Melbourne, Sydney, uh, Brisbane, uh, and Perth, and also I'm going to Auckland in New Zealand. So please come in November. Lots of people listen in New Zealand as well. Where do people awesome. find the details of this? Oh, on my website, philwang.co.uk. I wanted go. philwang.com, but it's he's a folk singer in America. Really, philwang.co.uk is me. Um, I, I t- have two more questions and then we are absolutely done. So thank you so much for doing this, by the way. I really appreciate it. Uh, the first one is this. As, as close as I used to have to an inspirational saying on my desk, I used to have a little piece of stone and in carved into it was the question, what would you attempt to do if you knew you could not fail? And for me, it was just a simple reminder Ooh. to not think about yeah, to do something to be successful. Like to imagine it's already successful, what would I love that thing to be? But I, I ask you that question and you can interpret it however you would like to interpret it. What would you attempt to do if you knew you could not fail? Um, I, I think I'd attempt to make a music album. That was my first love was music when I was a, a teenager. I did a lot of singing. I loved singing. And I got me- I got really into the the Rat Pack and Crooners. I was a weird kid, man. But <laughs> I, I loved like you know, I was like fifteen, sixteen. Everyone's listening to Good Charlotte. Mm. I'm listening to like Frank Sinatra and <laughs> Dean Martin and Bobby Darren and you know Sammy Davis Jr. Mm. I wouldn't listen to anyone if they weren't dead. It was very. Mm. I was a weird kid, to be honest. Um, but but I think if I could not fail, I'd, I'd go back and try music again. I think I, I, there's something that really gives me joy when I'm singing to myself or there's something in me that loves doing that. It activates a real pleasure center in my brain when I when I sing. But comedy, because comedy makes you such, <laughs> for lack of a better term, a miserable bastard. But not really <laughs> miserable, but like, you just become so fucking sarky about everything, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And like earnest, an earnest attempt yeah. to do something genuine is so embarrassing when you've spent your entire yep. career going, <laughs> okay really you think that's good Uh (laughs) and so i I, to get rid of that voice in my brain and do something earnest and potentially like sweet and Mm. emotional oh just Mm. talking about it now gives me shivers (laughs) you know yeah but Um, i know what you mean that's cool i love that that's a great answer to that question i really appreciate that okay Uh, good good this final one maybe i'll do it 
This final one's an absolute hypothetical. So you have no social responsibility in this question. Uh, it is a time travel question, but there are no rules of time travel. You don't have to worry about the implications of your actions and you don't have to do anything on behalf of the world. You don't have to go back in time and warn people about climate change or like you don't – what I like to say is you don't have to kill Hitler unless your particular passion in life has always been to kill Hitler. Like I'm not saying that you can't, <laughs> but but you don't have to, right? That's what like, I've been working on yeah. in the background yeah. of comedy is like how do I do it? How do I kill yeah. Hitler? There are big like cork boards in my in the, you can't you all, for right now you can only see the animal print. That's because I yeah. don't want to show you the cork board with the red string. You rip it down with like and just pictures of Hitler and just question marks. <laughs> That's what's on the other walls. <laughs> just the greatest just reveal like the of all mustache, time. If you mark? just spun it around, Hitler at different ages, at different places, <laughs> you like map the whole thing. Yeah, and just like targets <laughs> like, on his face and like, how do I do it? Range of different weapons just with like... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this one one sign says COVID. Give him COVID. That's right. All I've got to do is get COVID in modern times. I mean, got to be honest with you. Of all the ways to kill Hitler, that's not a bad way to kill Hitler, right? You just right. get COVID in modern times, travel back, cough near Hitler. I mean, I am vaccinated. He isn't. Yeah, right. Because he'd be an anti-vaxxer for sure. Yes. Can you imagine? Oh, of course. <laughs> it would be. Okay. But yeah, so it's a time travel question. If you could go anywhere in a time machine, forward in time or backward in time, um, with no implications of your actions, this is purely just for you. Where would you like to go? Oh, I don't know. It's like 2013, tell myself to buy mm. Dogecoin or whatever. Mm-hmm. Is, that, yeah, yeah. is that too... The, is that too the, biff, the biff from Back to the Future version of this? Is this what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, yeah. Though, to be honest, I'm mean, the honest answer is I do like time traveling mm. tourism, I think. Have to, I have to only go to one one bit. Well, I mean, the, the, yes, it's a hypothetical question. You get one, yes. one, one, one. <laughs> This isn't a yeah. serious question. You don't, <laughs> I don't have to go tomorrow. You haven't got it all set up. No, yeah, yeah, an, an itinerary. <laughs> Like, for legal reasons, it's a hypothetical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, oh, man, I think I'd like to go to, oh, gosh. I can't say ancient Rome because that's like, that's the the joke now is all men ever think about is the Roman Empire. Yeah. So I'm going to go, I want to see the, I want to go back to ancient Rome. I mean, if you did go to ancient Rome, though, like, I mean, now that everybody's talking about, like, it is the topic du jour of the internet and, like, modern times is men talking about, you would actually then be able to come back with some really good, well, actually, conversations when people brought (laughs) it up. You're like, well, actually, I was just in the Roman Empire and it isn't anything like you're representing it to me. But I, I just sound like any guy who listens to a podcast, though. You yeah. know, people go, oh. <laughs> all right, he went back in time in the figurative sense, right, right? He listened to yeah, 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 yeah. a history podcast. Um, I think I'd, I'd like to go to, like, ancient Greece. Although I don't speak Greek. But then if, if, if one of the – if I could know ancient Greek, I'd like to go to Athens and sit in, a, like, a, a, a big a toga and just sit in the agora and listen to um, Aristotle – 
prattle on about meaning in life and and because i mean that was a that was the first time in history where people went maybe we shouldn't just like kill each other and just try and survive and just eat food to survive and find food and farm you know maybe you should think about why we're here i think it would be interesting to have gone to the first point in life where people kind of went wait why 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 are we here what's all this for you know, and would you I'm, and I'm, and like would you be? Are you the sort of comedian who can go to a comedy club and just watch comedy and not want to get up? Like, would you go back to oh, ancient yeah. Greece and you'd be like sitting there going, <laughs> "I mean, yeah, this is some good stuff." But give me five. I reckon I can yeah. blow some people's minds here right now. <laughs> yeah, I just lean. I just lean over to plate yeah. and it's like, "Can I do oh. five? Oh, just <laughs> can I? Just can I get on? Things. Can I? <laughs> <laughs> who books this? <laughs> How did you get this?" <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah that'd be cool eh yeah oh man that'd be yeah. cool yeah to go back to ancient athens mm. and when philosophy is like mm. only just starting out and like blow their minds yeah. with <laughs> i don't know jordan peterson i just i just read yeah. out jordan just, peterson i'm like <laughs> make your bed I'm like, Fucking hell, what Fable holy up. shit What's a bed? We just we just sleep on like hay so pads. <laughs> oh man, Phil, thank you so much for doing this. This has been such a great pleasure. I hope people go and check out your shows when you're in Australia and of course check out your book and your Netflix special. Um thank you so much for getting up early, half eating some porridge and having a chat to me today. <laughs> Thanks, Will. Thanks so much. I hope you enjoy your walk and your gelato. Are you going to get Conception again? No, no. Different flavor every night, mate. Different flavor. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. Listener.